Amen. Amen, church. Please have a seat. Good morning, everyone. How are you? How are you? All right. All right. All right. Hey, today is a special day in Harvest Decatur. It's Move Up Sunday. All right. If you have kids and Harvest Kids, you know what that means. They're moving up to the next grade, and that's an exciting thing. It's also a day, as you've already heard, where we are celebrating the debt payoff. Praise God for his faithfulness, and we hope you stick around for that because we have some fun things in store. But you know what all this signifies? Summer's over. I know it didn't feel like that this past week, and technically we still have another month before fall officially begins, but we're jumping back into schedules school, sports, and all those things. And let's face it, it's also a shift in mindset. You know, we have, to, we have to move out of that summer vacation mode and we have to get our minds wrapped around routines again. And hopefully we'll get there before Christmas. Well, along with all the changes that are happening, it's time to get back into our series in Mark called Divine Servant. It's been a good break. We've seen other studies throughout the summer, but it's time to get back to this marvelous gospel, and I hope you're as excited as I am. You know, you've probably heard people say things like this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you believe that? Right now you're thinking, is he asking me a trick question? No, you should believe that. It's true. God does love you, and he does have a wonderful plan for your life. And you know, when we hear a statement like that, sometimes it gives us the warm fuzzies because that whole wonderful plan, we, we and images start popping up in our head of, of what that could mean. But I'm here to share something that might be a little sobering with you. His plan is not your plan. Now, a lot of times, the things that we think about when we think about the plan for our life and dreams and goals, sometimes those are incorporated, but you know, more times than not, his plan does not pan out like you would like your plan to pan out. His plan, at the bottom rung of his plan, is simply this. He wants you to die. We're going to unpack that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer the author of the well-known book, The Cost of Discipleship, writes this. He's talking about God's grace, and he says this. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. This sermon is called Dying to Live. And that's God's plan. That's the idea that we get from our text this morning. God has a plan, and that plan is extreme. If you want to get on board with God's plan, you have to die. If you want to live, that is, if you want to experience all that Christ has to offer, both in this life and the life to come, then it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you your life. And that's what I want to walk away with. I know it's a delightful topic this morning. You want to live, you got to die. Before we get to the text, 
let's just back up a little bit and I wanna talk about where we are in the book of Mark and how we got here. So we started this series, you may remember, way back in January and Lord willing, we're gonna continue until the end of February and we've covered eight chapters now. We followed Jesus mainly around Galilee, although he's taken some detours and gone through Gentile country. We've seen him urge people, right off the bat, we saw him urge people to believe in the gospel because the kingdom of God was at hand. And you may remember we talked about the kingdom of God, that it's, it's something spiritual, that Jesus established a kingdom of God through his death and resurrection so that any who turn from sin and embrace him become citizens, spiritual citizens of the kingdom of God. But... The kingdom of God, you may remember, is also something to be anticipated because it's also physical. There's a day coming when God will set up a literal kingdom here on earth. We've also seen Jesus do miracles. That's been one of the exciting things going through the book of Mark. We've seen him heal people. We've seen him touch and restore the broken. We've seen him cast out demons. He's changed the weather. He's done all kinds of crazy things. We've also seen him teach and he's taught about this thing we keep calling the gospel. And the gospel, you might remember the definition, the gospel is the good news from God about God that leads to salvation. It's the message that God came in human form as Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life here on earth. He suffered and died in our place on the cross. And then he rose again, conquering sin and death. And if you believe that, if you are banking on Jesus' life and death and resurrection as payment from your sins, then guess what? You're saved. You'll go on to live with Jesus someday. We've also seen Jesus duke it out with the Pharisees, so to speak, and the religious leaders because they didn't like that he wasn't following their traditions and their observances. And you may remember, every time Jesus dukes it out with the Pharisees, he always comes out on top. He always says something to shut the mouths of the religious leaders. We've looked at all this, and why? What's the purpose? Why did Mark bother recording all of this down for us? Simply put it, to show us the identity of Jesus. He was and is divine. The reason Jesus taught what he taught and did what he did was to demonstrate his authority as God. When we left the book of Mark, Peter had said it best. He said, you are the Christ. Peter got it. He had, someone had finally understood that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one. He is God incarnate. So we know who Jesus is. That's what we've been looking at. Now we're gonna do a bit of a transition. We're looking at the second half of Mark and we're gonna see why Jesus came. Today we enter a new section. Jesus is going to head to the cross and he is plainly telling his disciples he's headed to Jerusalem. This second section, by the way, goes here from here, 831 through chapter 10. And at this point, Jesus has turned his face toward Jerusalem. He's headed now to his ultimate purpose to die. And a lot's gonna happen between now and then. So you ready to get in the text? Let's do this. I want to look at three things from our text today. God has a plan, and I want to invite you to get on board with the plan. And in order to do that, you need to know the plan, accept your role, and heed the warning. Know the plan, accept your role, and heed the warning. Those are the three things we're going to look at. That's our outline, and I'm going to develop it as we go along. 
So know, accept, heed. Here's your first point this morning. Know the plan. Jesus, your Lord, had to suffer and die. Know the plan. Jesus, your Lord, had to suffer and die. Join me. Let's look at the text again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, the first thing that I want to take a look at this morning is that phrase, son of man. Overall, this is Jesus' favorite phrase when referring to himself throughout the Gospels. He uses this phrase around 80 times collectively through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he has previously in the book of Mark referred to himself as the son of man only in chapter 2. And now we get back to it here in chapter chapter 8, and he's going to use it more frequently. What is this, son of man? Well, this was a title that Jesus used to tie himself both to his humanity and his divinity. See, the phrase was often used in the Psalms and even the book Ezekiel. In, the, in those instances, it was stressing a human being. It was a son of man, as you might expect, a descendant, a human being, someone who came from man. That's what it meant. But then when we get to the book of Daniel in chapter 7, The phrase is used to indicate one who will come and receive dominion and glory and a kingdom. Let's look. This is on the screen. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, this reference in the book of Daniel, this reference to Son of Man is a reference to Jesus. Of course, when Daniel was writing, that was forthcoming. Jesus had not come yet, but it's pointing to Jesus. And so you see, it captures both his humanity and his divinity. He is the son of man, and he's come, but he's come to suffer. And see, that idea was not the disciples' idea of the son of man. We're going to see in the next couple chapters, three times, Jesus explains this to his disciples. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. This has been the plan all along. Even in the Old Testament, there's hints about this plan. In fact, way back at the beginning, Genesis 3.15, there's a hint toward this plan. Genesis 3.15 reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That you shall bruise his heel is a reference to the coming cross. Way back from the beginning, This was the plan. And then thousands of years later, Jesus reveals to his disciples, this is the plan. And the text tells us, Jesus said this plainly. Do you see that? Jesus said this plainly. That is openly, frankly. You could also say boldly, confidently. He told them straight up, this is what's gonna happen. 
And that's in contrast, by the way, to Jesus' parables. Now, a parable was a truth that was hidden in a story, but he doesn't do that this time. He tells them up front, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And Peter, poor Peter, he doesn't like the plan. It says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, that word rebuke, that's the same word in the next verse when Jesus rebukes Peter, but it's also the same word that Jesus uses when he's talking to demons. It's extreme disapproval. Peter says, no, this is not going to happen. And by the way, disciples never corrected their masters. This was unheard of. A disciple listened and obeyed. Peter's not just out of line because Jesus is God and God has a plan. Peter's out of line culturally. What does that tell us? That tells us how disturbing the news was to the disciples, that he threw culture away and went to his master and rebuked him. He was disturbed. And what does Jesus do? Keep reading. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Just as Jesus rebuked the demons, he rebukes Peter and even calls him Satan. Now, Jesus is not inferring here that Satan is possessing Peter. That's not what's going on. Rather, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's using a term of exaggeration to show how serious a thing Peter's doing here. See, that name, Satan, or Satan, it means adversary. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is, you're an adversary to God's plan right now. You're moving against the things of God. And the text tells us, Jesus says this after turning and seeing the disciples. Did you see that phrase? What's going on there? Well, Peter was often the spokesperson for the disciples. Many times we see Peter speaking, and what he's doing is he's saying out loud what the others are grumbling about. That's what's going on there. So this is cluing us in that it's not just Peter who feels this way. All the disciples are disturbed by what Jesus said. They're not on board with the plan. They're expecting a Messiah, a son of man, like the one outlined in Daniel chapter 7. He's supposed to come and receive dominion and glory and a kingdom, but that's not the plan. Not yet. Something else has to happen. God has a plan. Peter and the disciples were not on board with the plan, and you and I can fall into that same trap. Now, we're 2,000 years removed from this. We're on the other side of the cross. We have the rest of the New Testament. We understand the plan. We see it as Peter and the disciples didn't see it at this moment. We read about the plan. We're indebted to the plan, and we worship the God who invented it. And you want to know something? We don't have any problems with this part. God's plan to redeem mankind, we don't have any problems with that. Or do we? See, we know that Christ's death means he took our punishment. He took what was meant for us. He died in our place. He was the substitutionary atonement, which means he was the substitute that died for our sins so that we who believe don't have to die for our own sins. And we like that part. That's what the cross means to us as believers in Jesus Christ. But there's something else. The cross also means that we can't 
be righteous enough. This plan of God, it was put into place because man cannot be righteous enough to save himself. The standard of righteousness is absolute and total perfection. The only way you can get into heaven is by perfectly obeying God every single moment of your life. And you and I can't do that. We've already messed up. I'll wager some bets. Some of you already messed up this morning. In fact, we messed up way back when we were kids. We messed up with our mommies and daddies. But the Bible tells us that it's even worse than that because we were born sinners. We were born contaminated. We entered this world as sinners. We didn't have a chance. And we don't always like to hear that. We don't always like that part of the plan. We don't always like to hear the why part of the plan. Why did God do this? Because we couldn't do it for ourselves. See, built into our sinfulness is pride, and it's pride that wants to earn our own salvation. Deep down, we all struggle with this. We have a desire to earn our salvation. We don't want to be indebted to God. We want to earn it. And there's pride in us. Pride that does not want to admit that we need God. And see, even after we're saved, we struggle with this. Have you ever discovered in the depths of your heart a motive, a desire to do good to make God happy? Have you ever felt that? Even subconsciously, that thought, that drive has been there. Where does that come from? That comes from deep roots in our heart that want to be good enough to earn God's favor. Beloved, I've actually got good news for you on this. You can't make God happier with you than he already is. No good deed is going to grab God's attention and cause him to think, wow, that was impressive. Look at what he did. Look at what she did. They must really love me. God doesn't think like that. God doesn't operate like that. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, you become God's son. You become God's daughter. Your sins are wiped clean and the righteousness of Christ is placed on you and God could not be more pleased with you. J.D. Greer, the author of a devotional book that's simply called Gospel, writes this. In Christ... There is nothing I can do that would make you love me more and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. This is God's plan. You couldn't save yourself, so he stepped in and saved you by dying in your place. That was the plan. Know the plan. Embrace the plan and be free of striving to please God through your human efforts Be free by believing that Christ has already satisfied the Father. It is finished. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want. We should strive to do what's right, but not to earn God's favor. We already have that. We do what's right because now we have Christ's righteousness. 
Now we are identified with him. So live your identity. You are a child of God. We should act like children of God. Know the plan. But here's your second point. Accept your role. You, his disciple, must suffer and die. Accept your role. You, his disciple, must suffer and die. Now, I'm not talking about literal death per se. He might call you to that. But I'm not talking about literal death here. But look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Accept your role. You too, as his disciple, must suffer and die. The plan was for your Savior to suffer and die, but that's his plan for you too. Welcome to Christianity. Come die with us. Don't think that tagline would get a lot of disciples. But let me flesh this out. The text tells us Jesus called the crowd to himself. Did you see that? Now that's a bit surprising. Where did this crowd come from? Because if you're following the story and you jump back up to verse 27, it appears that Jesus is traveling with just his disciples. In fact, they were headed to the village of Caesarea Philippi. All of a sudden, here's a crowd. Where'd they come from? We don't really know. However, as we have studied Mark over the months, we've seen that there's always a crowd around Jesus. It's really not that surprising, or it shouldn't be. And we think, well, how did this work out? Maybe Jesus was traveling ahead of the crowd with his disciples, and then he turns and he calls the crowd. We don't know exactly how it worked out, but however it happened, there's significance here. What Jesus has been saying to the disciples is not just for them, it's for all followers of Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes the time to stop and share this conversation. It's almost like he stops the conversation and said, you know what, this needs to be for everybody. Let's call everybody together and let's continue this conversation. And he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You might say that's the crux of the Christian life. That's the purpose of a disciple. A disciple is a follower, a learner, and they have a purpose. Their purpose is to die. Now, what does that look like? Jesus says two things here. He says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that's really two things. The first one is deny yourself. That's the first one. Let him deny himself and then take up your cross and follow him. That's really one idea. But what does this look like? How do we do this? Well, let me give you two words to help us understand what Jesus is saying here. If you want to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, then you must resist and embrace. Remember those two words. You must resist and embrace. We resist the flesh and we embrace the Savior. Jesus is saying to deny yourself, to die as his disciple, you resist your flesh. You resist your flesh. Resist the part of you that wants your own way. It's removing yourself from the throne of your life. You know, you're going to worship one of two things. You are. We are hardwired to worship. And you're really, when you boil it down, you're going to worship one of two things. You're going to either worship Jesus or you're going to worship yourself. 
And that might look different for different people, but those are the two things that we really have when we boil it down. See, this message is bombarding our culture. This message of worshiping yourself, this is all through our culture, and you hear it in phrases like this, follow your heart, do it your way, trust yourself. You know, I'm gonna be upfront with you guys. I've been there. I have done that. I got the t-shirt, and it was ugly. It was not awesome. I'll share with you just briefly. When I was in high school and even into my young adulthood, I had plans for my life, plans of grandeur. I was going to start a band. I was going to write books. I was even going to make movies. Nothing wrong with any of that, okay? There's nothing wrong with any of that, but you see, that was my plan. That wasn't God's plan. And pursuing those things above God's plan for me, can I be honest? It only led to misery and disappointment. You know, following your heart, it feels good for a time. I'm not going to argue that. But you end up in a place of pain because you make your life all about you. And when you do that, you alienate yourself from God and from others. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, Your responsibility is to follow your master, accept your role, die to self, take yourself off the throne of your life. That's resisting. Resist the impulses that bombard you every day to do life your way. Resist that. But don't just resist. We can't stop there. We have to embrace. Embrace your Savior embrace his plan for you and Jesus graphically illustrates this by saying take up your cross and follow me and the Jews knew exactly what he was saying when he used that word cross we have it as a symbol that we wear around our neck we put out in our church and that's great but in the Jewish time in the first century century, the cross was a symbol of torture and death the cross is not some mere irritant okay The picture that Christ is painting is not this. You know, this Christian thing, it's a little uncomfortable sometimes, but I'm gonna take up my cross and follow Jesus. That's not what he's calling us to. The picture is this Christian life is more than uncomfortable. It's hard and it's painful and it's difficult and it's impossible. And I don't know why God does what he does sometimes, but come hell or high water, I'm gonna follow Jesus even if it kills me. That's the idea. We take up our cross, mean we are willing to follow Jesus even if he leads us through hell on earth. And many of you have been there. Why is this happening, God? God, I can't see your goodness in my situation. God, I'm suffering right now and I can't even feel your presence in my life. It doesn't make any sense that I'm in this place. What am I supposed to do? Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Resist and embrace. How do I do that? How exactly do I do that? When each step is more painful than the one I just took, how do I keep doing this? How do I resist? How do I brace? I'm gonna give you one word that I hope helps you and the word is lean, L-E-A-N. Lean into Jesus. Lean into his people. Lean into Jesus every single day. Depend on him. 
talk to him. Ask the Holy Spirit constantly for help. Lean on him. Also, lean into his people, and his people are the church. Reach out. Reach out for prayer when you need it. Share your struggles with close brothers and sisters in Christ. Get involved in a small group. It's that change of seasons now. Small groups are starting up again. It's a great time to get involved. But resist and embrace. Resist being the king of your life and embrace Jesus as king of your life. Lean into Jesus and his people. Do that every single day. Last point this morning, God has a plan. Three ways to get on board with the plan. Know the plan, accept your role, and lastly, heed the warning to refuse the plan results in death. Read with me verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whatever, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Refusing the plan results in death. Jesus says, if you fight to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you fight to keep yourself as king over your life, you're going to suffer loss. If you want to be the center, you're going to experience great loss. And by the way, this is the path our world is on. Our world is on the path of live your life, do your thing, you only live once, chase your dreams, put yourself first, and the end result of that way of thinking is loss. And if there's no turning back, then it's eternal loss. Now, what Jesus is doing in these verses, there's a bit of wordplay here. The word Jesus is using for life in verse 35 is the same word for soul in verses 36 and 37. So that word can mean life as we think about it, life here on earth, physical life that we have, but it can also mean spiritual and eternal life. So what Jesus is saying is, if you strive to save, if you, if you focus on this physical life, then you forfeit your eternal life. Whereas if you lose or deny yourself in the physical life for my sake in the Gospels, and by the way, that means the Gospels, meaning if you are for that message of salvation... If you deny living in the physical life for yourself and instead live it for Jesus, you save your life. You save your eternal life. It's an exchange. See, you have a choice. You can make this life about yourself and lose eternity, or you can make this life about Jesus and gain eternity. Jesus expounds on this. He says in verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, if you focus on this life, if you make yourself king of yourself to the point that you gain the entire world, that you rule the entire world, you gain it all, everything, but you lose your soul in eternity, what have you really gained? 
you know, a few decades of pleasure and popularity and everything this world has to offer at your fingertips in exchange for eternity without Christ. What gain is that? And furthermore, Jesus says, for what can a man give in return for his soul? In other words, what's worth comparing to your soul? Can a person give anything that compares to their soul? Can they gain anything that compares to their soul? And the answer is no. The soul is priceless. Even if you had the whole world, you could not exchange that for your soul. You could not exchange that for eternal life. The only way to preserve your soul is to choose Jesus. Jesus goes on and he hammers the warning here. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Excuse me. That word for ashamed means to have feelings of fear or shame which prevents a person from doing something. The meaning here is to feel shame or to feel fear over putting Christ as the head of your life, to fail to confess him as Lord and Savior. That's what we're talking about here. You can add to this meaning. You can say spurn. You could say reject, but it's a failure to embrace Jesus as Savior. And if you choose to put yourself above Christ, he won't accept you in the kingdom. If you reject Christ, he rejects you. And the addition of the words adulterous and sinful generation, that's really talking about where we are right now the fall of man since Genesis 3 to whenever Jesus comes back. And it should also call to mind Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel ran from God. They were idolatrous. They ran to other gods instead of Yahweh. They betrayed their true husband, Yahweh. That's idolatrous in the eyes of God. So to refuse Christ is to align yourself with those who spurn God. The mention of the Father and the holy angels, by the way, that signifies the final judgment. When is all this going to take place? It's going to take place at judgment. When Jesus returns and judges the whole world, if the, for those of, who have turned away from him, who've rejected him, who've not bowed to King Jesus, that's when they're going to be ashamed. They're going to be ashamed of Jesus, and notice, they're going to be ashamed publicly before all of heaven. This is going to happen. So having said all that, I have to ask this question. Do you know Jesus? There are two choices. You're going to worship someone. You're going to worship yourself or you're going to worship Jesus. You're going to put something at the center of your life. What's it going to be? You or Jesus? One seems like life but leads to death. The other seems like death but really leads to life, eternal life. So if that's you this morning, stop running. Stop chasing yourself. Stop ignoring Jesus' offer for salvation. You're not guaranteed another day. I don't want to think about it, but the truth is you could walk out of here. You could be hit by a car and that's it. Stop running. If that's you this morning, don't put it off. Turn from your sin and believe that is to trust in Jesus. If you have questions, I'll be around after the service. Please talk to me. But my brothers and sisters in Christ, 
you too heed the warning. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. That's not what I'm alluding to. I don't believe in that. What I am saying is, even as Christians, we can focus too much on ourselves. And we can experience loss. Not loss of salvation, but loss of reward. Revelation 22:12 reads, Behold, I, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one of you for what he has done. See, our works do not save us. We are saved by grace through faith, praise Jesus, but nevertheless, there will be rewards in heaven and our works gain or lose reward. When we're following Christ and making Jesus the center, we're gaining reward, but when we're making ourselves the center, we're losing it. But beyond that, beyond the rewards, our works on earth are what testify about Jesus. If our works are of self-denial and taking up a cross and following him, then others are gonna see that and perhaps be saved. But if our works are self-focused, then others are gonna see that and maybe want nothing to do with Christ. So heed the warning, Christian. If you get onto your own path, the results could be catastrophic. Now the last thing that we're left with is a cryptic message from verse one of chapter nine. And he said to them, remember he's speaking to the crowd, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Is that confusing? He's telling them that there are some who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now wait just a minute. This happened 2,000 years ago. All those people are dead. The kingdom hasn't been set up yet. And Jesus said at the start of our message today that he's going to die, not start the kingdom. So what's going on? Teaser. You'll have to come back next week to find out. But church, let me challenge you. Get on board with God's plan. His plan is to redeem man, and that is the greatest act of self-denial. Excuse me, let me say that again. Jesus' plan to redeem man included the greatest act of self-denial. See, Jesus just, just didn't tell us to deny ourselves. He didn't just say it. He set the ultimate example. Jesus, by going to the cross and giving his life, by following the plan, set for us the ultimate example of denying self. Why did he do that? We could give many reasons, but the one significant for today is this. Jesus took the cross, the shame, and the wrath so that you and I didn't have to. Could we face shame and pain, and even death for Christ? Yes, that's possible. A day may come when you and I have to give, might have to give all, all for our faith. We may suffer as our Savior suffered in that respect, but you know what? We will never suffer to the length that he went. He set the ultimate example. Ask yourself this question. In the Garden of Gethsemane, why did Jesus beg the Father for another way? If you think about it, many Christians 
Many Christians have been martyred for their faith and many went boldly and proudly and held their heads high as they were facing their death. But we get to Jesus in the garden and he's sweating drops of blood so disturbed in his soul to face the cross. Why? Especially when he knew he was not going to stay dead. Because Jesus knew he was going to face something that his followers will never face. Separation from the Father. See, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing far worse pain than the nails or the thorns or the whips or the blows. He was facing what we never will know, separation from the Father. Since the beginning, he, the Father, and the Spirit have dwelt in perfect love and unity, and then came the cross. That's what Jesus was dreading in the garden. But even then, he denied himself and stayed on board with the plan. So Jesus, far more than you and I, has denied himself. He has set the example for us. He experienced a loneliness, a forsakenness that you and I cannot fathom. And we'll never have to. I'm going to bring up my word again. Lean. Lean into that. Lean into the truth behind his death. He took the separation from you, for you. Let that motivate you to die so that you may live. Church, God has a plan. To get on board with that plan, you've got to know the plan, accept your role, and heed the warning. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we are astounded that you went through with the plan when it cost you so much. We stand in grateful awe at your willing sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Now help us, we pray. Help us to follow in your footsteps so much as we are able. Help us to die to self just as you set the example for us to do. Help us to lay ourselves aside and embrace whatever plan you have for us. Strengthen our resolve to heed the warning that if we choose self above you, we will lose lose reward and possibly damage opportunities to demonstrate Christ to the world around us. Help us, Lord Jesus, for it's in your name that we pray. Amen.